You want to go ahead and read the thing? All right. During the first few days of March in 1910, a woman named Sarah Jane Covington was laid to rest in Olympia, Washington. The beloved mother of seven and grandmother of 22, Sarah Jane had enjoyed a long and productive 69 years. Married to her husband, Melmoth, for nearly 50 years, she was an intellectual woman with a kind heart who contributed her time and energy to a number of charitable causes in Olympia. Like many women of her era, Sarah Jane was a dedicated correspondent and loved to keep a diary. On a recent trip to Spokane, she had written lengthy letters home to her married daughters, and in the days before her death, she had kept a meticulous diary. Long after her funeral was over and the mourners had returned home, Sarah Jane's last diary entries gained a significance that she could never have predicted in her lifetime. In fact, Within a few days of her funeral, they were read aloud in court as part of a coroner's inquest. There, her diary provided key evidence in perhaps the strangest and most violent accident ever to occur in the northern Cascade Mountains, an accident that had claimed Sarah Jane Covington's life and the lives of 95 others in a nightmarish chain of events. On this episode of Relative Disasters... The 1910 Wellington Avalanche. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, your host for this episode. And I'm her brother Greg, your co-host. Our sources for this episode are the book White Cascade by Gary Christ and a really good mini documentary by Seattle's Channel 11, KSTW, um, along with a lot of local news articles that I will link for you in the show notes. So this is a boring place to start, but we got to start by talking about the weather. We are going now to the Northern Cascade Mountains, okay, which is the Pacific Northwest. And the weather in the Northern Cascades, even though they're not tall mountains compared to the Rockies, it is some of the most unpredictable and precipitation-prone weather in North America. So what's happening is in the winter, the wet maritime climate of the Pacific blows east into the mountains and combines with the subarctic climate of northern Washington to produce winter storms of almost unimaginable ferocity and volume. Yikes. Okay. So we're going yeah. to a little place called Stevens Pass, which is way high up in the northern Cascades. And the average winter there sees 500 inches of snow per year. I'm sorry, what? That is enough to bury a four-story building. And in some years, like, that's the average. So in some years, the accumulation is much higher. Holy cow. And the snow can be constant. So in January and December, you can expect snow on two out of every three days of the month. So fully two-thirds of the winter, it is snowing. Wow. Okay. And yet... People still have to get through the Cascades. Okay. So you've got Seattle on one side. Right. And Spokane on the other side. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
Yeah. And if you are coming from Spokane or Leavenworth and you need to get to Seattle or Everett, which is on the other side of the Cascades, you have to go all the way down (laughs) and over and up. And it's a trip of like days. Oof. Until the Great Northern Railway decided to create a track that went over the mountains. Despite the weather. It's not just the weather. It's that there's really no good place for a pass. Yeah, okay. So they did a lot of surveying. And what they came up with was a pass that went through Stevens Pass, which is at 4,000 feet elevation. The thing is that these mountains are really steep. So the 4,000 feet you are climbing really drastically in a way that you're not when you go over the Rockies. Right. So at first they had this really complicated arrangement of like switchbacks and you needed two engines to push trains up one side. Oh my Just God. <laughs> nightmare material. Yeah. And then they built a tunnel and that helped, but you are still going up into these incredibly snowy, incredibly cold, incredibly unpredictable weather mountains. Right. By the turn of the century, there is express mail. There are passengers who have the expectation that this is just like a bump in the road and they can get to Seattle in a few hours. Yeah. Like it's it's not a big deal to cross the mountains. And that's because the Great Northern Railway is building snowsheds over the stretches of tracks that are prone to drifts. And okay. they're also maintaining the upper parts of the pass with these two small towns that have coal and water supplies and like an army of laborers living up right. there. Right, okay. So what are the laborers doing up there? They are shoveling with shovels. Now you would think for a place that gets 500 inches of snow per year, yeah, you would not be able to manually shovel and you would I be mean, correct. <laughs> that, is, yeah. that is just too much for a person, <laughs> even a lot of people with a lot of shovels. Right. And by the way, these guys are paid 20 cents a day. These are mostly extremely recent immigrants who have no other opportunities. Mm -hmm. And their job is to shovel the drifts and the snow slides down to a 13 foot depth, because that is the maximum amount of snow that a rotary snowplow can handle. Just keep it down to 13 feet. You would think that would be easy. No. No. (laughs) I don't think any of this is easy. When it's down to 13 feet, a rotary plow can handle it. Now, a rotary plow is a train. That's not accurate. It is a piece of train equipment that moves on rails like a train. It is an enormous rectangular fan of blades inside a frame that is the height of the engine behind it, which is 13 feet tall. Okay. So the blades on the front of this machine bite into the snow And they can handle all kinds of snow. This is a powerful machine. And they send it flying away through a pipe on the top. Okay. So it's like a snowblower almost. Sort of. The plow has an engine, but the engine is only for running the plow, like running the rotary fan. So you still require an engine behind it to push it up and down the mountain. Right. Okay. And in fact, during particularly bad snowfalls, multiple engines would be coupled to rotaries on either end. So it would form this okay. like snow-eating unit that would plow both ways without needing to turn around. Jeez. 
So there are five of these things on Stephen's Pass, and they do the job. You know, winter after winter, passenger trains and freight trains are able to get through the mountains because there's this aggressive, constant snow handling going on. At first, the snowstorm that begins on February 21st, 1910, looks like a regular winter storm. The rotary plows are keeping up, and the supply stops on either end of the Cascade Mountain Tunnel were able to keep the trains going through, despite the increasing heights of the drifts on the track. Okay. The next day, February 22nd, Great Northern Railway's number 25 train departed from Spokane, Washington, to begin the 400-mile trip to Seattle. And this is not a very long train. It's called the Seattle Express. It's just two okay. sleeper cars, two day coaches. They have a mail car, a baggage car, an observation car. And they're all pulled by a single coal-fired steam engine. The Seattle Express is on the same schedule as another train, and that is the number 27, which is also called the Fast Mail. And the Fast Mail is running boxcars full of mail along with a handful of mail clerks from St. Paul, Minnesota to Seattle. And that's a trip that they can make in just under 48 hours, which is lightning fast for night. That is really fast. Yeah. Jeez. So with the snow expected to ease up soon, railway authorities sent the two trains up the eastern slope of the mountains together around 1.30 in the morning. And they're running just behind a rotary plow. Now it's snowing, but the rotary plow is going to handle it. The trains are moving together so that neither one is going to get snowed in behind the other. Right. And they make their way slowly up to the pass to this tiny town, Cascade Tunnel Station. And around 3 o'clock in the morning, at 3,000 feet elevation, they stop. So the delay was caused by another rotary snowplow, and it was on the other side of the tunnel. It had broken down, and it needed to be both repaired and shoveled out. Oh, God. Okay. And because there's this army of laborers living up there, they think that this is going to take about... A few hours, maybe half a day. But it is bitter cold, and the snow is still falling. So by morning, it still wasn't running, and the eight clerks on the fast mail and the 70 passengers on the Seattle Express had to wade through snow up to their waist to have breakfast at the Beanery. That's the cookhouse okay. that serves railway laborers. Now, I called Cascade Tunnel Station a town. It's not really a town. It's a dormitory. It's the Beanery. And it's like a big equipment depot. So they have like a sure a turntable for the trains. They have siding. They have mechanics and equipment. But that's it. It's not a town okay. in the sense that there are roads. Right. Or right. hotels. Infrastructure. Restaurants. Yeah, okay. They just have this beanery. <laughs> so a few hours stretches into a few days as workmen try to deal with the broken tunnel and the supply issues amid nonstop snow. It never stops snowing. Oh my gosh. So on February okay. 24th, both trains were brought through the tunnel and parked on siding at the yard at Wellington, where crews thought they would be safe from the increasingly deep snowpack and the increasingly large snow slides. Now this is wet, heavy snow, and it compacts when it hits the ground. This is like the worst snow in the world because there's a special name for it. They call it Cascade Cement. <laughs> it's extremely heavy. And what it's doing as it falls is it's creating these little snow slides. So, you know, the, the volume will get too much, something will let go, and the bunch of snow will slide down across the track. Ugh. And again, they can't get the rotary plows into anything over 13 feet tall. 
So Wellington is like Cascade Tunnel Station. It exists only to serve the trains passing through. There are no roads. There are very few services. The town itself is balanced very carefully above the track, below a slope that is covered in the charred remains of a forest that had burned down during the last summer. And then below the town, the mountainside steepens into a thousand foot deep ravine. Okay, yeah, I don't like where this is going. Now, there is actually a town at the bottom of this slope. It is called okay. Scenic. And Scenic is a real town. They have roads and hotels. Okay. And it is probable that people who were up on this part of the track could actually see the lights of Scenic. It's only four miles away. Sure, okay. So they know it's not far, and this is seems like another temporary delay. Okay. Also, Wellington has the Baylets Hotel, which is a small inn that serves railway employees. Okay. So it's slightly more sophisticated than the Cascade Tunnel Station. The hotel okay. is not big enough to accommodate the Seattle Express's amount of passengers, but they have a dining room. So, and they have enough food to keep the stranded travelers from going hungry, and they have a bathroom. So, yay. Things we are looking those. up. However, at this point, these people have been stuck aboard this train for something like five days. Oof. And they're getting sick of it. The passengers begin demanding assistance, supplies, evacuation. They want more information about the situation. Sure. Yeah. And they just can't get it. But on February 28th, they actually send a petition to the Great Northern Superintendent, James O'Neill. Okay. And the petition says they want to be let off the train and taken down the mountain. Well, this is not as much of a stretch as it sounds like, because O'Neill has been on the mountain since the storm had begun. The passengers okay. could see his car, which he was using as an office, and okay. it's parked on the same siding. So it's like an observation car. He's got his stenographer in there. He's got his telegraph people in there. Gotcha. So he's right there, but they still can't get any information from him or his staff. I mean, you're snowed in. There's not a ton of information to give you at that point, right? Well, they want to know when the track is going to be cleared. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Which is his job. <laughs> yes, there. yes. To be clear, that is what he's supposed to be doing. <laughs> to be fair, this is a a moment where it is appropriate to ask for the manager. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so following this petition, which did nothing... Five of the passengers decided they had had enough. So two of them are lawyers <laughs> who are going to argue a case in front of the state Supreme Court. And they're like, you know what? We're going to miss our court date. We need to get out of here. Yeah. So they hike through the tunnel and they hike several miles down the snowy track. And they stop just above the town of Scenic, which, again, four miles away, nearly a thousand feet below. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Now, at this point, they talk about turning back because they are wading through snow drifts that are up to their armpits. If you've ever tried to walk in snow without snowshoes or without skis, yeah, it's exhausting. It's incredibly difficult. You get wet. This is how people die. Yeah. So they talk about turning back, but with the still falling snow filling in their footsteps. Right? Oh, no. So they know they're no, going to have no, to wade no. through the same stuff on the way back, and it's yep. getting dark. Yeah. Because it's February. Uh, might as well keep going. They yeah. decide they're going to slide down the slope to the town below. So taking the fun route. They, well, <laughs> I don't think it's fun. 
Do they get on their suitcases or something? No, okay. they don't take their luggage. They um they have these overcoats on, so they pull the overcoats up between their legs and they kind of slide down on their butts. I like it. You know what? I like it. It's pretty desperate. <laughs> Miraculously, they all survive and they land at the scenic hot springs hotel. Oh, okay. So they're bumped and bruised. I think one of them has a wrenched ankle, but it is amazing that they survive this. But they're there, yeah. Yeah, but they're there and there's no way to get back and there's no way to communicate with the people on the train. Oh, right, yeah. I wasn't thinking of that. And the people on the train are not all hale and hearty 30-ish lawyers, right? Sure. There are several families that are traveling with young kids. There is a man who is dying of an infected gangrenous wound. And Mm -mm. there is a man with a severely broken leg. So there are people who physically could not make this so it's not like this is this is an option for everyone this is not a solution yeah yeah i mean a lot of those kids also were young there were two infants and a three-year-old and some older kids but you can't (laughs) you just can't wait through snow up to your armpits with a baby so with the snow still falling and temperatures beginning to rise the danger of avalanches was now increasing yeah and they've already seen these minor slides that had blocked the track on both sides of the mountain They still can't get the rotary going. And Mm. on February 25th, the snow above Cascade Tunnel Station lets go. And it wipes out the beanery where the passengers had just eaten. Oh, God. Okay. So the snow had started on this bitter cold night of February 21st. And although the temperature is fluctuating, like it's getting up into the 30s, it has not stopped snowing. The snowstorm goes on for nine days. Jeez. Okay, and it's layers and layers of very cold, very powdery snow mixed with very okay. wet and very heavy snow. That's what you do not want. That is a that is an avalanche waiting to happen. So above Wellington, hundreds of tons of snow balanced on these steep slopes, and they're held in place not by a forest, which would have decreased the risk of avalanche, But there are only these charred stumps and trunks that are left over from the previous year's wildfires. So they haven't had a chance to grow back. Warm weather makes the snow on the track impossible to shovel away because it's it's like wet and slushy at this point. And now the rotaries are out of coal. Oh, God. So there's just no... Okay. They can keep them running, like they can keep the engine warm because it takes something like 12 hours to get these up and powered. So each one has a little skeleton crew just keeping the boiler active. They do not have enough power to actually do what they're supposed to be doing, which is clear the track. Right. And at this point, the laborers go on strike because they're getting paid 20 cents a day. (laughs) This is probably one of the hardest jobs you could have at this time. It is relentless, backbreaking physical labor. Yeah. They want... 25 cents a day. James O'Neill is yep. like, I don't think so. Get back to work. Oh, no. Come on, man. And this is what he's spending all his time doing, is arguing with the laborers and trying to get them back to work. And to his credit, he does pick up a shovel and shovel. Sure, but, but that's one dude. <laughs> he needs everybody, and it's just yeah. not happening. So on the night of February 28th, the weather changed again. Now, it didn't stop snowing but a winter thunderstorm swept onto the mountains from the west. Oh, geez. 
Okay. It is extremely rare for a thunderstorm to occur within a blizzard because thunderstorms generally need warm, wet air. But for some reason, yep. something happened and this thunderstorm started up around 1.30 in the morning of March 1st. Okay. Nobody really knows how this happened. It could have been a lightning strike, um, the vibrations of the thunder, or simply from the rain melting just enough snow at the base of the snowpack. A half-mile-wide chunk of the snowpack above Wellington let go. Oh, God. Okay. So gathering speed and picking up debris as it went, the snow cascaded down through Wellington, and it took buildings, trees, railroad tracks, telegraph poles. It took everything. It slammed into the superintendent's car. It rolled it onto its side and packed it with wet snow. And then it hit the Seattle Express and the Fast Mail, and it sent both trains tumbling end over end into the valley below. Were the people on them at the time? Yeah. So people were asleep. They were in their bunks. And a number of the laborers were also inside sheltering from the storm. So over 100 people were on the two trains when this happened. And the damage was incredible. When the trains came to a stop, they were just a mangled mess of broken cars, smashed engines. They're half buried in the snow. And and again, the snow is so wet and so heavy, it feels more like cement. So it's not the kind of snow you can kind of dig yourself out of. The avalanche had driven boards and poles as well as whole trees into the wreckage. One engine had landed on top of a passenger car where dozens of people had been sleeping. Although a few people were pulled alive from the wrecked passenger train and a single mail clerk survived the wreck of the number 27 train, the final death toll was 96 people lost because some of the people on the train were not ticketed passengers. That number is an estimate. I'm, I'm honestly shocked anybody survived. They're not buried deeply, so they kind of come to a rest partially on top of the snow. From the photographs, it looks like okay. the, s- the snow kind of tumbled them down, and it, it didn't bury all of the cars. It left a few kind of poking up. So the coroner's inquest, which is held two weeks after the accident, found that the storm mm-hmm. had created conditions, quote, beyond human control. <laughs> and they're trying to assign blame. So they're trying to find out if the railroad had been negligent. Okay, yeah. So the storm is obviously an act of God. Um, the storm, yep. A storm like this has not been observed ever in this area. The avalanche is not the railroad's fault. However, the jury decided that the fact that the trains had been trapped at Stevens Pass at all was at least partially due to the railroad's actions. Okay. So not enough coal was on the mountain where it was needed. There were not enough mechanics okay. and enough extra parts to fixed the rotary that had broken down. Okay. There was not enough labor to shovel the slides and snowdrifts down to the 13-foot level the rotary plows could manage. Yep. And Superintendent O'Neill had not evacuated the passengers. He had not agreed to their demands to have the train put back inside the tunnel until the danger of an avalanche passed. That was one of the Uh, things they had asked for. Yeah. Okay. Now, he didn't do that because this tunnel is not ventilated. It is just a tunnel cut through the rock. Okay. Yeah. Oof. So a coal-fired engine produces a lot of heat, 
and it produces a lot of gases. And they were concerned about the risk of passengers asphyxiating, which is yeah. a valid concern. They were also concerned that a, an avalanche could trap either end of the tunnel, so trap the train yeah. inside the tunnel, and passengers would suffocate. They're just It wasn't a big yeah. tunnel. There wasn't a lot of room in there. Yeah, yeah. But you can see why. <laughs> because they had asked for that, I think a few days before the avalanche occurred, a reasonable person would say, why was not? Why was that not done? I mean, but how much more awful would that have been? Like, we survived the avalanche, but then we're trapped in this tunnel and everybody just suffocates. You know, like, that, that would have been just as bad. Being trapped on the mountain at all. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> was horrible. But I think because people were able to successfully evacuate, there was, the jury put more of a responsibility on the railroad superintendent. Okay because he had chosen not to evacuate everybody or even evacuate the people who could have been moved. So the jury found that the Great Northern Railway had been negligent and could be sued by the victims of the accident. However, okay. the verdict in the first lawsuit was overturned by the state Supreme Court. And by 1915, the rest of the claims had been settled out of court. In 1929, a new tunnel was built below Stevens Pass. It was eight miles long which made it, I believe, the longest tunnel in the world at that point. Cool. But okay. it completely eliminated the need for steep grades above scenic and shortened the trip from Spokane to Seattle by hours. Okay. So the track above scenic was taken up, although the concrete snow sheds were left in place. And the sure. town of Wellington, which had become so associated with this avalanche, was first renamed. They named it Ty. And okay. then it was just demolished. So if you go up there now, you can hike it. It's a rail trail uh, called the Iron mm. Goat. <laughs> but the town is completely gone. It's not a ghost town. There's nothing. There's just nothing there, yeah. The snow sheds were left in place. Right. So part right. of this trail is covered, um, but there's no sign that there were ever any buildings up there. Okay. So snow hmm. slides, snow storms, and dangerous winter weather continues to trouble the northern Cascades. But the Wellington Avalanche of 1910 is still the deadliest in American history. Wow. And that is the story of the Wellington Avalanche. Obviously, it's, it's just awful, but the, the weather at play is so extreme. I mean, it's hard to wrap your head around like 500 inches of, of annual snow to begin with. Mm -hmm. But then that particular mix of powdery snow under wet, oceanic snow covered by powdery snow covered by another layer of wet snow like that is that is just awful and then the thunderstorm coming out of nowhere like that's beyond bizarre um, because as you said like thunderstorms usually can't form in snowstorms and when they do uh, they they don't tend to last long enough to do much damage i'm wondering if this avalanche did it impact on scenic at all no Scenic was not in the no. path of this avalanche. It flowed okay. down over Wellington, across the track, and, just and into the Down ravine. into that gorge. And okay. then it just kind of petered out in the forest below. So was Sarah Jane Covington one of the passengers on the train? Yes. She okay. was writing her diary the whole time they were stuck. There were a couple other people who were working on letters that were retrieved. But a lot of the passengers who left Spokane... Never, never arrived, yeah. Yep. But I think, you know, I, I, they were doing the right uh, thing by staying on the train. It was much more dangerous right. to actually get out 
walk. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the lawyers that walked. Through that... the tunnels, slide on your Unreal. butt down a thousand <laughs> feet. Yeah. I mean, it's a great story, but statistically, you're much better off sticking to your nice warm train. Has there been an equivalent um, snowfall slash storm system like that since? There have been several very snowy years in the Northern Cascades. As far as I know, this is the only snowstorm that lasted for nine days. If okay. they had gotten a break in the weather, it's possible that yeah. they would have been able to clear the track. But because it just never stopped and the trains were just in constant, yeah. you know, they were trying and trying and trying. Um, yeah. But they never got that break in the weather that would have allowed them to clear the track and at least get the trains down. Because yeah. they obviously weren't sending any more up. Like the, the pass was closed below Cascade right, Mountain right. Station. They just wanted to get those two trains down. And unfortunately, they never got a break in the weather. And they couldn't send them back the way they came because the the pass was, was like they would have just had to have been clearing the other way, right? They were focusing all their energies on the western side, trying to get the trains gotcha. down off the mountain. They weren't trying okay. to get them back. Right. To, right. Uh, I think it's Leavenworth, where they start up the mountains. Here at Relative Disasters, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly... And you know you want to. Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. And we want to thank our patrons who support us at Relative Disasters Podcast on Patreon. This week's episode was brought to you by Bernadette. Bernadette. Our expert rotary mechanic. And Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie. Chief in charge of avalanche maintenance. Nice no, job. Management. Ladies. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, Ella, it's our last disaster of the season, and uh, it's it's not a, a natural disaster. It's not a shipwreck. It's... Nothing of the sort. It's, it's in fact, a disaster that really only happened to one person. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are going to talk about uh, a person who did an act of selfless heroism, and his entire life was destroyed by it. Oh, dear. We're on, the, on this season's last episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to talk about the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford, and how it really ruined the life of the man who saved the president's life. <laughs>